0: O God, you've taught us to keep all your commandments by loving you and our neighbor. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart and united to one another with pure affection. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That is the Collect appointed for today, July the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are um, just one day before the 4th of July, so um, that's a great thing. Um, I I probably won't do anything special for the 4th of July this year. We've just been out of town, been to Boston, and, well, the 4th of July, you know, hey, kind of inextricably tied with Boston. Had a great trip. Everything went well. Uh, excited about um, being back and, and ready to go and kind of you know looking forward to, to seeing what God's got for the next phase and steps in life and all that kind of stuff. So uh, anyway, just thanks for uh, listening and thanks for being along on this goofy ride that I'm on to, to do these podcasts. I, I really enjoy this. I could do it all day every day and be perfectly happy. It's the way the Lord keeps me in His Word and thinking about His Word uh, constantly. And so uh, it's just a great blessing in my life to be able to do this. It's the place where I feel close to God more often than anything else that I do, frankly. sitting here in front of a microphone in a room by myself talking. (laughs) But I know I'm not alone because I I always pray beforehand and, and ask the Lord to come and be with me and give me the words to say. And so I know that I'm not alone when I'm here. Um, so today what the, kind of the, the way of looking at this is sort of the way that the founders of the country actually looked at themselves because these guys sacrificed much in order to uh, to lead the, the charge of the revolution uh, that separated us from England they, they, they lost most of their personal wealth most of these guys um, didn't benefit it, it cost them, nearly everything in some cases, to sign on to the Declaration and to be leaders in the Revolution. It, it didn't benefit them at all. They did this for us. They did it for future generations. They believed that, that it would be best for their families and those who came after them to do this. And so their attitude was, it's not about me. And that's really the, the sermon today. It, it's really, it's just not about me. And so we're going to look at three different passages obviously to to tease that out and see what it, what does it look like in in life and how do we play that out what does proper humility look like for instance um, you know it in in Exodus it, it, we were told that Moses was more humble than any man on earth and then you think well Moses wrote that <laughs> You kind of get a chuckle out of that. Except this. This is the way that they understand it. The Jews understand that passage. And I think this is brilliant and beautiful, actually. And and that is, God told him to write it. He wouldn't have written it if God hadn't told him to. And and so it's not coming from Moses that he's humble. It's coming from God. And and what's proper humility? You know, there's the old thing about um, somebody making the statement in in front of—I've forgotten who the woman was now, Lady Astor maybe, somebody like that, and made some comment about that he's a very humble— Humble man, and, and the response was, well, he's got a, a lot to be humble about. No, I think that was actually—it was Churchill that said that, uh, that he's got a lot to be humble about. Um, so there's a proper humility that, that stay, comes before the Lord and bends the knee, but understands the role that you've been given in the kingdom and, and doesn't— um, is, is properly humble in that you step into that role and you carry out that role. If that's a leadership role, that, that, that you lead in a particular kind of a way, that you recognize that you're submitted to the Lord, but that you have a solemn responsibility. In that leadership, and it's true in teaching and everything else, is that, that, you know, okay, so maybe I know some things, but it's because the Lord's given me the time to study those things, and he's given me a spirit to know these things, not so that I can be lifted up, but so I can tell you, (laughs) because that's the whole point, is to share it. You know, it's those who learn should be learning so that they can teach. And whether you're teaching somebody who's brand new in the faith, or if maybe you've been a teacher for a long time, I don't have any idea. But but we're the goal of learning is to incorporate that, what we know, into our lives, and then also to teach others. And so that's the reason to do this. And so that proper humility is not sort of being a shrinking violet and, and denying that you know anything or have anything worthwhile to offer. It's knowing your lane and staying in it. <laughs> and knowing that whatever you have comes from him so you're submitted completely to him and, and so that's the way we love one another that's the way we love our neighbors ourselves we do things like Moses did right when the people turn on God God's mad now at the people and he's ready to destroy him what did Moses do he could have thrown him under the bus and said I told you these people were awful but he didn't he said no no, no wait a minute don't do that and, and he would intercede for the people and and that's Jesus his humility is the same. Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God. He was the incarnate son of God. But but as a man he was in the form of a servant and told us to humble ourselves to serve one another, and that's the way we love one another. And so today what we're going to look at is the a passage in Second Kings five, one to fourteen about Elisha and Naaman the Syrian commander. And then we're also going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter ten, verses one to eleven and sixteen to twenty, and then in Galatians six, verses one to sixteen. So there's a lot of verses to deal with today, so I'm going to kind of get at it here. So Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. And in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Does that mean he's a man following the Lord? No, not at all. He was the one who got victory for Syria, and because of that, that's proof that the Lord gave that victory. Because God's in charge, he's sovereign over all things. So that's a Jewish commentary, because by him, the Lord had had given victory to Syria. Now, the other part of it is, he's in high favor with his master, and a great man with his master, because they had victory. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, on one of the raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, "'Would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria.'" that Samaria is a way of referring to the northern kingdom. So after the death of Solomon, the, the kingdom is split between the northern kingdom, which is ten tribes, and then the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin down in the south that worship in Jerusalem. So, so there's a whole different thing going on in the north. That's what Elijah was fighting was, was Ahab and Jezebel. They were king and queen of the north. And so he's fighting them, and now they're gone, and we're in the time of Elisha. So she said to her mistress, "'Would that my lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy.'" Naaman must have been a pretty decent guy, actually, if this girl thought well enough of them to say, hey, there's a way for him to be healed. So Naaman went and told his lord, the king of Syria, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel." So I'll give you sort of letters of transit to use Casablanca language. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, which is about 750 pounds of silver, (laughs) 6,000 shekels of gold, which is about 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. He sent that to the king of Israel. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me word to me to to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. So I'm sending you all these gifts, but it's dependent on you healing this guy of his leprosy. And the king is like, I can't do that. What in the world? He's trying to provoke something here. By doing this. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that, that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be clean." Now, this is what Jesus did with the centurion. The centurion sends a representative, and Jesus never sees him. He just says, go do this. And it'll be fine. And so here, this is the same thing. This man, who is a great man, he's a commander of the army of Syria, and he comes to Elisha, and what does Elisha do? He sends somebody else to tell him, hey, go do this. Really? I mean, what disrespect that would have seemed to be, Right. I mean, huge disrespect that this man is an important man in Syria, which is greater than Israel. And and Elisha didn't even bother to come out the door. (laughs) He sends somebody to go see him. So Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So he had in mind how things would happen, right? I mean, this is the way we would do it at home this is what would happen if there was somebody like this in our place they'd come out and they they'd yell you know kind of scream up to heaven and, and call on the name of the lord and wave their hands around it and yeah, i'd be cured but that's not what he did are not abana and farfar the rivers of damascus in syria better than all the waters of israel you know there's this pride thing that's going on here uh, could i not wash in them and be clean he told me to go to the Jordan. That's a, that's a river here in Israel. I mean, I could have done this anywhere. And the waters in, in my homeland are better than the waters here. You know, look at them. They're, these are conquered people. They're nobodies. So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he not actually said to you, wash and be clean? So... He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So the servants, I mean, it says something good about Naaman. First, that he listened to his wife's servant girl and came to Israel because of what she said, but, but probably at this point he's desperate, and he, he wants to be healed so badly that that his greatness will be even greater after that. And and so he, he surely expected a better welcome from the prophet after, you know, bringing in 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, plus these 10 pieces of changes of clothing, he he probably expected uh, somebody to come out and and do something rather than just eh, send an errand boy out here to do it. But the servant, so he listens to the servant girl and and does this, like I said, probably because he's desperate to be healed of this. And and so he comes to Israel for that reason. He, He humbled himself To be able to do that because there was something he needed and a promise or a hope, at least, that that he would receive it. And and now he comes and doesn't get exactly what he expects to get from this quote, prophet person. And, And then he, so he's mad. But then he listens to his servants who kept their heads about him and said, It's worth a try, right? (laughs) it's pretty simple he he didn't like give you a million different things to do that were very difficult to do he didn't give you a set of challenges so that you'd be healed no he just told you to go do something simple and so he he said well you know i'll humble myself again and i'll go do this so it, it speaks well of naaman that he that he does whatever the the servants in two different cases servants say this is what you need to do and he does. So it speaks well of Naaman that he does that, but it, but it also says about Elisha, it's not about me. That See, Naaman wanted, wanted it to be about Elisha. He wanted him to go do something great. He wanted to do something impressive and, and, and make a spectacle of himself. But Elisha said, nah, nope, just do this. So Elisha didn't want it to become about him. He wanted it about, to be about what God was doing. And so he didn't make it about himself. He could have, and that's exactly what Naaman expected him to do, was to he call on the Lord, but then he'd wave his hands around and all this, and, and then everything would be fine, um, because I thought he had magic powers. Well, he's not a magician. He's a prophet. He's the mouth of God. And so you could take it from the mouth of God that that's what was supposed to be done, rather than drawing all the attention to himself. Now, I've certainly seen and experienced along the way people with different kinds of roles and gifts and all that kind of stuff in the church, whether they be prophets or priests or teachers or whatever they are, who who everything they do draws attention to themselves. And this doesn't mean the Lord's not in it, but you can you can get to the place where it becomes about you, and you're the one. And you know, I had a friend who was, for instance, a um, a bodyguard for Jimmy Swaggart. And then when that whole mess happened with Swaggart and the prostitutes and all that kind of stuff, the the Assemblies of God Church summoned Swaggart to come up to uh, Missouri, which is where the the church is headquartered, and went up. And they told him, you know, because of this, you're going to have to step down because the church is getting a black eye, and and you're going to have to step down as a leader for a season of time. And he said, well, how long are you thinking? They said a year. He said, I can't do that. The church will collapse without me. And so he got back on a plane and went back to uh, Louisiana. And my friend said so when they got back to Louisiana, they got on the tarmac, and he looked at him and he said, I'm done. I quit because your pride is so great that, that if this church rises and falls, if this ministry rises and falls on you, then there's something wrong because it should rise and fall based on Jesus. But but I've seen it happen too many times. People follow teachers. They follow preachers. They follow whatevers, you know, and, and then that person might fall. I mean, we, we've seen this. Uh, way too often, frankly. I mean, Ravi Zacharias, who who was somebody that I really loved, but um, had some personal stuff that came out around the time of his death that that was you know not good at all. And and so we have to be clear that we're following Jesus, um, and we're not following men, women, whatever. Um, I had a friend who uh, I guess you call him a friend. Let's call him that. Um, who, who would see me in the gym, and, and for a while, every single day, he would say, John, what's, what's the word for today? And I would tell him whatever the Lord was saying to me because I was working on my blog or whatever. And so I would tell him what I was hearing from the Lord at that time, and he would always immediately respond, This is what this person says about this. This is, you know, remember what this one says, remember what that one says, that one. No, no, no. I said, you know, you know, I didn't realize that you were kind of Roman Catholic in orientation. He said, What are you talking about? I said, Well, you seem to only hear the word of God through other people. You don't, you don't seem to have that personal and immediate relationship with the Lord. You, you seem to have it all mediated through other people. It didn't really please him very much. But, but that's the thing. He wasn't in the Word of God for himself. And I've got too many friends who are like that. They're not in the Word of God for themselves, so they take whatever they hear from some popular preacher and they apply it. They, they, they don't—you know, it's pre-chewed food. So it's, it's imperative that we be in the Word for ourselves. Don't just listen to me. So in the, um, in the gospel lesson today, uh, remember that <laughs> Jesus is on his way. He set his face to Jerusalem, and he's headed that direction. So after this, after the, the, the mess with John and James wanting to call down fire on the Samaritan village, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And as I mentioned last time, that they were sent two by two to send people out by themselves. Bad idea because we need somebody with us. Um, so he, he sent them out as heralds that the kingdom of God is coming near. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So, so there's, there's a huge harvest out there. We just don't have enough people to bring that harvest home. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So we tend to think of it the other way around, right? We tend to think that, that um, the harvest is not plentiful. We, we see it as, um, as small, and there's probably already pr- plenty of laborers for this. That's not the way Jesus sees it. The harvest is huge if we'll just go do the work of preaching the gospel, right? So he says, go on your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, that, that didn't bless me <laughs> to be sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I, normally, shepherds don't send lambs out into the midst of wolves. But Jesus says, I want you to be aware, of the situation on the ground, this is you know that that there's going to be opposition, and you guys are supposed to go out there and be innocents, bringing this word of the kingdom. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In other words, don't be deterred. Don't greet anyone on the road because you, you'll be deterred from the mission that I've given you to do. Go to the towns, but don't carry any extra provisions for this trip. No, go, God's going to provide. That's not the way we do mission trips nowadays. I mean, you plan forever and ever and ever. You make all these checklists and you take everything you can possibly imagine you're going to need when you get there. Um, But Jesus says, don't do any of that stuff. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it'll return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves as wages. Don't go from house to house. Stay in the one place. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So if you're received, then do these things. Whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God is drawn near. One way or another, the kingdom of God is drawn near, but they're passing judgment on that town based on their reception. In the same way that James and John wanted to pass judgment on the Samaritan village that wouldn't receive Jesus when they came because his face was set for Jerusalem. So he's saying that, that don't. all you have to do is to say it's as though we had never been here. We don't want any part of this town clinging to us because judgment might come on this town. It's it's the same idea of why you don't have a synagogue in a place where you have less than ten Jewish men, and, and it goes back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if you don't have, it was when when Moses or not Moses, Abraham uh, argued with God or, or bargained with God is a better way to say it over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He got him down to ten righteous men. If there were ten righteous men in the city, God said, I won't destroy it. And then And then he you know said, "That's enough. We're done with that, that that discussion, and so that you don't have a synagogue in a place where there's less than ten Jewish men because God might destroy it. And so it's the same here. We don't want any association or affiliation of you, not even the dust of your town because of this, because you're liable to judgment. You've brought judgment on yourself because the kingdom of God came near, and you rejected it. And then as we skip a few verses there, and then it goes down to the one who hears you hears me. So when you speak, if they hear you, then they're hearing me speak, Jesus said. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And the one who rejects you rejects me, which is exactly what he says with You're not rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. So, but he's applying that to us. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me so it just passes up the chain if you're rejected well don't worry about it because they're rejecting me and don't worry about it because they're rejecting him ultimately the father and and it sometimes it, it's it's hard to get your head around that because we want to take everything personally but jesus says blessed are they going to revile you and persecute you for my namesake you know it, it blessed are you that's not my first reaction <laughs> my first reaction is quite the quite different than that um So then the 72, after they went out on the mission, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, they're really excited because, wow, you will not believe this, but even the demons are subject to us in your name. They saw great things. They saw the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. As they proclaim Jesus, they see the power of the Holy Spirit working through them in ways that that are, are extraordinary. And bring great praise and honor to Jesus because th- they see this and they see the power of God working through them. And, and Jesus is-, is thrilled about that. But at the same time, there's a warning that he gives them. He said, I saw to them, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority. So it's a delegated authority that allowed that to happen. I gave you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. In other words, the protection of God is on you because I've given you the authority to do these things. So as long as you're there representing me, it doesn't mean that we'll be safe from all harm. Missionaries die all over the world, all the time. So I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. You know, that, that's a huge statement. Over all the power of the enemy, I've given you authority over that and nothing shall hurt you because the time had not yet come. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't get a big head. Don't, Don't rejoice in those things because ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to make it about you when you do that. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So store up your treasure there, not here. Because that sounds like you're beginning to try and think about storing up treasure here by making a name for yourself. Nope. Your name is written in heaven. That's the important thing to always remember. And you've got to keep the main thing the main thing, because if you don't, you know what's going to happen? You're going to lose that sense of humility, and you're going to let it become pride that these things happen, well, because of me. And now I'm the one who does this. I heard Terry Fulham speak uh, one time talking about healing ministry. He says nobody really has a healing ministry um, because they can't heal everybody and it's not theirs anyway. He says there are people through whom God sometimes or often heals but not always and it's not them who has the healing power. It's God's power working through that person. but, But it can be easy to take that into yourself and say I have a teaching ministry. Well no you don't. God has a teaching ministry. He teaches through you. And that's the thing. We always need to keep that sense of humility about everything that we do. And and sometimes we can make too much of our, quote, ministry. And when we do, we make too much of ourselves. And that is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. That's when you decide that you need a $60 million jet to do your ministry, just like the one Jesus had. So it's easy to get caught up in this stuff. But God's got a way of bringing us low. When we, when we get too big for our britches, when we get too much, becomes about us. God's got a way of bringing us low, one way or another. God's got a way of doing that. In the uh, epistle today in Galatians 6, Paul says, If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if you catch somebody in the church in a transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore him to the fellowship with a spirit of gentleness. Why? Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So judge not lest you be judged. So, you know, you're as as susceptible to falling as they are. You know, maybe not to that particular thing, but you're as susceptible to falling as they are. Don't get your, you know, out over your skis on these things. I can remember Gordon McDonald talking one time at the Cove here in Asheville. This is years ago now, and he taught, and I've shared this story before, but he talked about he was standing in line at some sort of a convention with other clergy people, and somebody he just barely knew asked him, Gordon, if, if Satan was going to get you right now, how would he do it? He said, I thought that's a weird question. He said, I looked at him and said, I don't know. But I, but I can say this with some certainty. It wouldn't be the, in the area of my marriage and my personal relationship with my wife. He said a year later, he's driving around. He and his wife are driving around, and they're listening to Christian radio. And what they're listening to ultimately is a discussion of how Gordon McDonald could possibly have had an affair, because he did, within that year. So we have to say, I have no strength in and of myself. I don't find any strength in me. If there, To the extent there is any, it's God. But because I could fall tomorrow, you know, and that's the way that we need to think about our lives, because that way we're no longer relying on our own strength. We're no longer operating in our own power. We're always recognizing our need for and the reliance upon the Lord. And it's critical that we maintain that 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 sort of spirit of humility about our lives before him. Because we can, we can all be tempted, and so that means that we are more gentle in the restoration of those who have been found in sin, whose sin has become publicly known. He says, "Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Well, there's two different words that are going to be at work here. One of those is going to be a load, and one is going to be a burden. A burden is an excess, so it's somebody who's going through a whole lot right now. That's that's going through too much now. Uh, you sometimes what we have to do is look at people and say, that's not a burden, actually. I carry what you're talking about. No, 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 no. You're making a mountain out of a molehill and you're making a burden out of a load. And, and I'm not going to come alongside you and help you with that. You've got to learn to carry your own load. But but you can tell, you know, when somebody is, is carrying burdens that, that are greater than that we were designed to carry by ourselves. We're intended to become the community, to come around them and do that. That's the reason in Romans, Paul says, weep with those who meet, weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We're to come alongside and to help them bear those burdens. And he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so what is the law of Christ? Well, last week, Paul said, it's summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. So bearing one another's burdens is one way in which we can love our neighbors as ourselves. He said, for anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And, and again, that's that whole idea of, 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 of never saying, I'm strong in these areas. No, 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 no. Don't go there. Do not go there. No. The Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You, th- these are the things you need to constantly remind yourself. I could fall at any moment. I I am susceptible to any temptation that's common to man. I need to be strong in the Lord. I need to be in his word. I need to be in prayer. I need to be standing in the spirit. He said, but let each one test his work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So you do have to carry a load. I mean, everybody understands that life comes with difficulties, right? So when when those difficulties, those ordinary difficulties of life are your load— I've frequently (laughs) in ministry had people come to me and ask me to to help them carry their load, and my response to that is, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Everybody in this congregation deals with the stuff you're talking about. You don't get to offload that to make your life easier. Nope. Sometimes we have to carry our own thing. Let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. So, in other words, it's the same thing that um, that Paul had said before, and that is, is that, that the worker deserves, it's the same thing Jesus said, the worker deserves his wages. And so Paul says, let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. The one who teaches, he, he's saying, is devoted to the teaching of the Word, and therefore, he, he, unlike Paul, who was a tent maker and, and never took anything from anybody, um, no, he, he, he's carving out a space for professionals, quote-unquote, in the church, do not be deceived god is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap so what i was saying before is is that you know you get too big for yourself and you think this is about you and then what ends up happening is that will rebound on you because god won't share his glory with another so Whatever you sow, that will he also reap. For so the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So in this, what we need to do is is that what he's saying is is that we've got to live our lives by by keeping the main thing the main thing, by, by by doing what Jesus says. No, don't rejoice because the spirits are subject to you. No, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So that, that's sowing to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit is storing up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. Taking your delight, your summum bonum, your highest good, which is the philosophical term, keep that the kingdom. And, and that's kind of what, you know, in Jesus tells all those parables of the kingdom. That, that's what he's saying. He says, you know, the, the woman who, who the pearl of great price that you find in a field that you're going to sell everything and you're going to get, you know, you sell everything in order that you would own that. That should be your attitude towards the kingdom. And so when he says, Paul says, don't sow to the flesh, but from the flesh you'll reap corruption. You can't take it with you. You, you can't take it with you. It's not going to last into eternity. So reap, sow to the spirit. So you'll reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good it's easy to do that it's easy to get burned out on on doing good it's easy to get burned out on doing certain kinds of ministries you know I've seen it a million times people like I, I can't take this anymore I, there's not enough reward in it one way or another you know it's easy to get weary of doing good. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't seasons of time in your life when you're doing this ministry, and then well, now God's pushing me into a different direction. Sometimes that's so that you won't be burned out, and and we need to to be willing to adjust to whatever God wants us to do at any given time. He said, for in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. So persevere and persist in the work God has given you to do until God gives you something else to do. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It all begins, judgment begins at the household of God, but so does doing good. We are to love one another, especially in the household of God. We're we're supposed to get filled up in that community. We're supposed to be filled with love and, and support in the community. It begins there because the world's not going to receive us that way. That's like Jesus said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. So in the community, the community is supposed to be the supportive environment we need to be able to go out and go into the world and do the ministry. He says, see with and now Paul's getting to the end of the epistle. And so now he's, he's stopped dictating to his amanuensis, the one who's writing the letter. And he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They want to do this for their own glory. And, and that's the whole argument in, in the epistle to the Galatians is, is these people are coming in. They want you to become Jews like them. Well, that's a failed enterprise. That's the whole point of the cross. The, the people who think they're so good because they're circumcised and the Pharisees, all those people, they didn't recognize Jesus. They missed the Messiah. I know because I'm one of them. He said, and I'm here telling you, don't do that. He said, because those people want to to become glorified by getting you to accept circumcision and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So if they can get you to take circumcision and say, okay, I'm a a Christian, but I'm also, I took on circumcision in the law and all that kind of stuff. No, he says, they're ashamed of the cross, they're making too little of the cross. It's exactly the same argument that he makes in Corinth. He said, I, I resolved to know nothing about you except for Christ and him crucified. He said, that's not what these people want. They want to avoid stirring up trouble among the Jews by trying to figure y'all out. So they're, that's why they want to get you circumcised, because they don't want to be fussed at for your not being circumcised. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire you to circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, there's a notch in the belt, there's another number that we're counting here, and it's because of me. I got you to do this. And when you do that, when it becomes that, then it ceases being about him. And it's exactly the mistake David made when he took a census, right? Because it started then down the path of we're trusting in numbers, not in God. Numbers matter. Nope, God matters. That's it. Me and God can do anything if he wants to. And so the the, the issue is, is that that we like to count numbers. We like to count scalps. And and he says, don't do it. Do not do it because they want to boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and out of the world. I don't matter. It's not about me. It's about him, completely about him. I don't measure my ministry. I don't do all this stuff. I know people. I, I count my ministry as important because God continues to give it to me and tell me to do this thing, and people continue to come to know the Lord, but but I'm not counting those things, and there's reasons not to count those things because you know what? Everybody doesn't persevere to the end, so we can count numbers endlessly, and it'd be completely meaningless because we're counting the wrong things. We're not counting what God counts, and Paul says... I don't glory in or boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's all that matters to me. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Is that person changed into the image and the likeness of God? By an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and the full infilling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because circumcision, I could say the same thing about baptism. You could baptize people forever and ever and ever, but, but if they're not becoming new creations, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You didn't make a Christian because you put water on somebody. It's not what happened. New creation, Paul says. That's what matters. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is the Israel of God? That's a huge question. The Israel of God is is Israel. Israel means those who struggle with God, the one who struggle with God. And so th- that's us. We are the Israel of God. The Israel of God is not the nation. Nope. It's the people of God the ones who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are now a kingdom of priests and a holy nation serving him. That is who we're intended to be. It's never intended to be about us. We're supposed to be servants of the living God, those who proclaim Jesus, who boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about me. Never should be. If it ever is, you let me know.